Hey, Pop. Welcome to Hey Pop. This is Dan Stone. So I'm a dad with two kids, and I set out to create this podcast under a simple premise. Parenting is difficult and amazing and transformative. It changes us. Fatherhood has produced both the most blissful and the most frustrating moments of my life. I want to better understand how each of us who finds ourselves as part of a family got here and maybe how we can be a little better at this most important job. So in Hey Pop, I'll talk with some of the most fascinating, creative, and unusual parents in the world. Musicians and writers, athletes, painters, chefs. They'll tell me their stories, and we'll talk about that cross-section of family life, work, and creativity. By the way, all our episodes live over at heypop.substack.com, along with a bunch of bonus stuff and written pieces by me and some brilliant contributors. You can also support the show there or sign up for free so each episode of Hey Pop lands right in your email. That's heypop.substack.com. Today on the show, Shay Serrano. He's the best-selling author of the rap yearbook, Basketball and Other Things, which President Obama picked as one of his favorite books of 2017, and Movies and Other Things. There's also a new Amazon Prime TV show based on his teenage years called Primo, for which he was writer and co-creator. Are we in the show right now? Did we start already? Yeah. Or is this... Yeah, yeah, we're in. Oh. <laughs> as soon as my kids could talk, I started writing down all the funny shit they would say using the Notes app on my phone. By now, my kids are six and eight, it's filled with gems. Shay Serrano does the same thing, especially capturing the witticisms of his 10-year-old son, whose family nickname is The Baby. Oh, this was my favorite. This is my favorite one of the last couple of months. Again, he's 10 now, headed toward 11. He's really smart. He's very clearly taken after his mother with regard to how good he is in school, how just like fast he picks up on stuff, mm -hmm. how mature he is as a person. The twins were like me. They were like, let me bang you over the head with this piece of wood and see what happens. Like, that's what we were doing. Yeah. He is like, I don't know. He's super, super clever. Anyway, March 9, 2023, Laramie and the baby were sitting around talking about outer space. I mentioned how, despite it being absolutely terrifying, I would love to go to space one day. And then the baby, without even thinking about it for five seconds, lifted me and said, Meal Armstrong. Meal, like the food. <laughs> Meal. Because he's always telling me that I'm, uh, I mean, I have a dad belly now. Oh, yeah. And so he's always talking about it and just like making fun of me for it. But Meal Armstrong, he thought of that in like four seconds. That's amazing. Like, this kid is a fucking genius. Along with the baby, Shay and his wife Laramie have high school age twin sons. I love this piece you wrote a while back for GQ about TV dads. Uh, particularly, I really love the opening. You're walking across the parking lot of some store with your kids and some lady stopped to just tell you you're doing a great job and you weren't doing, you weren't doing anything. Oh, yeah. And that's just like this, <laughs> this common thing that dads who just hang out with their kids on any level experience this from time to time that yeah. we're like elevated to the cultural status of being heroes just because we're present. Yeah. 
how fucking low can the bar get for fatherhood? (laughs) (laughs) It's so incredibly low. Yeah, that story you're talking about, I was walking out of a Target. I was with the twins. They're following behind me like little ducks. (laughs) And this woman pulls up in her car, this old woman, and stops us. And she's like, hey, I just wanted to say, like, it's really great seeing a father and son out together on the weekend, spending time together. And I was like, yeah, that is, that's true. I'm a fucking hero. This is, <laughs> she drives off. And then when she drove off, I like took a couple of steps and then realized she said father and son. And I look and I only have one of the twins with me. And the other twin is literally climbing into the back of somebody's truck in the parking lot at Target. <laughs> you know, she's telling me how great of a person I am while one of my kids is trying to get kidnapped. Like, yeah, it's a, it's the weirdest thing. We went to we went to breakfast a couple of weeks ago. Every Saturday, me, Laramie, and the baby, just the three of us go to breakfast because mm-hmm. the twins are old enough they could stay home at the house. They like to sleep in on the weekends, which yeah. is fine because they have to get up early the rest of the week. So it's like, all right, we're going to go to breakfast. We'll bring y'all something back. And so the three of us go to breakfast. And I, and I was literally just talking to the baby, just like making a joke and laughing with him. And then some little old Mexican grandma comes over and was telling me like how great it is to see me talking to my son. <laughs> I was like, this, this is so weird, but also like cool for me, I guess. Very easy. Very yeah. easy. In talking with guests for Hey Pop, I'd like to consider the arc of someone's life from childhood and friendships to marriage and career, thinking about the relationships and experiences along the way that made them who they are and shaped how they approach fatherhood and family. Long before Shay was a dad, he was a son, surrounded by a big, vibrant family. He was born and raised in a Mexican-American community in San Antonio, Texas, partly brought up by his five uncles, who each presented him with a different model for what it meant to be a good and successful young man. This is what his new TV show, Primo, is about. Shay's house was often filled with love and humor and colorful characters, and he drew from all of this as he made his way even when circumstances could be difficult. Yeah, the name of the neighborhood was, was Valley High on the south side of San Antonio. Uh, there's a, an Air Force base right, right near there. Mm-hmm. At the time, it was just like, oh, this is a cool place where I live and all my friends are here and this is great. You don't realize it until you leave. Yeah. And you sort of look at it from the outside like, oh, it was kind of not that great of a place. Like there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of poverty. We were on welfare, like our house or the places where we stayed got foreclosed on a couple of times. Like, but again, you don't like none of that uh, rings any bells in your head as being wrong because everybody that, you know, all of your friends, you're all sort of doing the same thing, you know, mm-hmm. when until I, I, I went to college and I was like, Oh, that's cool. Your parents graduated high school. Like I thought everybody's parents didn't graduate high school Yeah. yeah. or, Oh, you, your parents had you when your mom was 31. Oh, I thought everybody's mom got pregnant when they were like 17 or whatever. Like, because again, everybody around you is, that's, that's what was going on. You don't see any of that until you, until you step away from it. But at the time it was, I thought it was the best place in the world. I had, I had several places where I could walk to go play basketball and my friends all lived either on my block or a couple of blocks away. And we don't, you don't need a car. Nobody has a car. You just sort of wander around and, Mm You go to the, the corner stores and hang out. You go to the park and you'd go to, and you go to the mall and you ride the bus and you, it was, a, I had a great time when yeah. I was growing up. Besides basketball, which I know is re- important to you and still is, what other ways did you and your friends spend time? Like from your books, it, I just have this picture that you spent all your time with movies, music, and basketball. 
Is that the case or that, were there other ways that you guys spent your time? No, that's pretty much it. Yeah. We were, we were playing basketball. We were watching something on TV or we were like just wandering around. You go to the mall a lot in San Antonio or there's yeah. a skating rink that you would go to or you hang out a, a bunch at the park. But that's really all you were, you were doing. You were just trying to make some shots and talk to some girls and, <laughs> and every once in a while you get into like a fight at the park or whatever and. That was all I was doing from grade six to grade 12, and yeah. then I left. It was an incredible six years. Is is Valley High still similar to when you lived there? Yeah, it looks exactly the same. I was yeah. just there like uh, a week ago, just happened to be uh, cruising by, and so let me swing by and see what it looks like here, and yeah, it looks exactly, exactly the same. Do you still know people down there? Do you have friends that never left that part of town? Yeah, a couple of them are still are still there. That's usually what happens in a neighborhood like that. And grab a hold of some people and don't let them go. So when you did leave, you went to Sam Houston State in Huntsville, which is what, like three hours away or so? It's about four from San Antonio. Four. It's about one from Houston. Was that just a total culture shock? I mean, I know you, besides some things <laughs> yeah, like it, recognizing that your life was different than others, like was it, in what other ways was it a shock for you? Well, in San Antonio, in South San Antonio specifically, like the Latino population there is is the overwhelming majority. Like mm-hmm. every classroom I walked into, every movie theater I walked into, every basketball court I stepped onto or whatever, everybody looked like me. It was like I was never out of place. I was always, I was like a goldfish yeah. in a tank at PetSmart just full of other goldfish. It was great. <laughs> yeah. And then I got to... uh I got to, to college, and I think at the time, these numbers may be a little bit off, but I'm, they're pretty close. I think that when I, when I showed up there, there were 15,000 students in attendance, and of those 15,000, there was like a little less than 100 were Mexican. Wow. And it was, so everything got inverted, you know what I mean? And, yeah. And so I, I get there, I had never been to like a white party before. I went to a white party. I'd never been to a black party before. I went to a black party. I had, it was always Mexican, everything. Yeah, it was a big, a big culture shock. It's like, what the fuck is going on? Why does everybody where I'm from, their last name ends in a vowel or an S or a Z? Yeah. And that was not the case yeah. where, where I was all of a sudden. So yeah, it took a, it took a little while to get, to get used to it, but you know, eventually you settle in. Yeah, for sure. So I, I know you met your wife there. Mm-hmm. I read somewhere that you passed her a note in sociology class, yeah, which is so like beautifully old school, like bringing back seventh grade as an adult. I love it. <laughs> what did the notes say? Oh, I've never told anybody what the notes said, and I'm damn sure not going to tell you, Dan Stone, and all of <laughs> all your, right. and all of your listeners. <laughs> I, I figured I had to try. I told, I just had to give it a shot. I, I thought you probably wouldn't. Did, tell me this: so does, does Laramie still have it? Uh, I don't think she still has it. No, okay. it served its purpose, and then it and then it was destroyed, and then it was gone. I got her attention, and and then it got <laughs> yeah. lost in the ether, like the like the Ark of the Covenant. It's out there somewhere. Somebody will find it one day. Yeah, well, it's probably your got to be your most important piece of writing, though. I'd, I'd imagine. Uh, absolutely changed everything. <laughs> changed everything for an audience of one. I love that. Mm-hmm. After college, Shay and Laramie moved to her hometown of Houston. He worked construction for a couple years before getting certified to pursue his dream job, a middle school teacher. And I got to say, as a side note, I completely relate. 
I also taught middle school during that same stretch of my youth after time working as a landscaper, and I coached basketball. Shea taught science and also found himself coaching and getting involved in a bunch of other projects at the school. Oh, I coached every single sport. When you're a dude who's a teacher, they're just like, hey, guess what? Now you coach. (laughs) Like they don't ask, they just tell you. And so my first year there, they were like, oh, you can coach the soccer team. I did my interview and they're like, you got the job. Congratulations. And I said, great. And they go, oh, also you're going to teach the um, ESL population, right? English as a second language. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the school where I taught was like 98% uh, Hispanic, the the population there, mm-hmm. right? So they had a big um, ESL or ELL, English language learners, now what they call it. Mm-hmm. But they're like, oh, you're going to teach ESL. Also, you're going to coach soccer. Oh, and also you're going to, you're going to run the LULAC, the League of United Latin American Citizens. And I was like, oh, y'all don't have any other Mexican teachers. I get it. Okay, I see what's, I see what's happening there. Yeah. So my very first year, I coached soccer. And then we did really well. And then the next year, they were like, now you coach basketball and football. And I was like, okay, cool. And then so now I'm doing basketball, football, and soccer. And then by like year four or five, they're like, oh, also you coach track now. So by the end, I was doing all of the sports we had to offer. I got to to coach all of those, but it but it was great. It was like that was the dream job I wanted since I was a since I was a kid. I wanted to be a middle school teacher, and I wanted to coach. I just wanted to coach the basketball team. I don't want to coach everything. Right. But once right. I started doing it, then it became like a thing that I really cared about. Did you have a teacher in your life early on, like in the family or somebody like that, that made you want to go into that profession? No, nah, it just looked cool. Yeah, I liked the idea of you get to be in a classroom, but you don't have to do the work. Right, right. When you're a kid, like when when I was a kid, that's how I saw it. Yeah. And then you watch like uh, Saved by the Bell or whatever, and Mr. Belding's cool brother shows up and he's a substitute teacher and he like wears jeans and he (laughs) sits on a desk and he crosses his arms and eats an apple or whatever. And I was like, that's what I want to do. That seems great. Yeah. And so I went and and did that. Yeah. So my son's eight and he's an athlete and I've found myself getting drawn into coaching sports that I just don't know how to do. Like Mm -hmm. baseball, for example. I I played when I was a kid and I sucked. but And I love it. I'm a fan of baseball. But I'm now an assistant coach on his travel team and on the rec league. And I probably shouldn't admit Mm. it on a podcast, but I have no fucking idea what I'm doing. I showed up on the first day and they were like, (laughs) take those kids in the outfield and run cutoff drills. And I was like, all right. And I almost just want to ask a kid, like, you want to start this drill? Because like, I had no idea. Yeah. And I'm learning as I go, but was that, was it like that for you when they were just throwing sports to you? Like, did you run track? Did you play soccer? Did you know how to coach those or you just sort of figured it out as you went? No, I didn't know how to coach any of those things. You just figure it out as you go. With soccer, literally what I did is I bought on Xbox Road to the World Cup, a FIFA game. Yeah. That was, it was, it was about to be World Cup time. So they put that (laughs) game out and I was just playing that and like, FIFA, 2K, uh, Madden, all that stuff. It's really great to learn how to do stuff. Yeah. Because it's all in there if you're paying attention. And so I turned it on and I was like, all right, I picked Italy. I'll never forget. I'm playing with Italy. And at the time you you turned on the thing and you read all the stuff and you set the games up and they're like, all right, they're running a they're running a four four two was like the soccer formation right, that they played right. out of. And I was like, all right, we're gonna do the four four two. And then I'm just watching to see what the little what the little guys do on the screen. Okay, they'd like to get the ball here, and then they get it to the side, and then they center it, and then it's just mayhem after that. Like, we're just going to do that <laughs> yeah. every time. And, like, at the middle school level, all you need are a, if, uh, a couple of plays. If your team runs two plays, mm-hmm. you're fucking golden. You're Phil Jackson, you're Greg Popovich out there. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
And especially with something like soccer, which is like, there's no timeouts. For the most part, the kids have to know what they're doing. Yeah. And by the time they came to me, you know, grade seven, grade eight, they had been playing club soccer for a bit. So I could just be like, we're going to run a four, four, two. These are our midfielders. This is a defensive scheme. Like, and they would just go do it. They were like, great. man, the new coach I, really knows what he's doing. Yeah, I'm just again, I'm just sitting on the side like Phil Jackson holding <laughs> yeah. up a triangle and hoping they know what to do. But it was the same with all of it, with all of that stuff. I didn't know any of it. You just when I started coaching football, um, I started out as the like defensive coach. It's like, okay, cool. I'm just gonna read some books and figure this out. Mm-hmm. And you you realize in middle school, oh, everybody they don't throw the ball, they just run. And they very rarely run through the gaps. Everybody runs wide. Yeah. Okay, cool. Once we figure that out, or once I figure that out, well, let me get the two fastest, most ferocious players. They're outside linebackers, and they just shut down everything. Yeah. And then, you know, we get lucky, and we, we won a couple of, of our little, like, zone championship titles, and it was, it was great. But, yeah, I, I didn't know how to do any of that. Man, it is so fun, though. I mean, coaching basketball at that level was – I played it all through growing up and it's great. high school and everything. It's one of the most fun things I've done. Teaching middle school, the kids are right at the cusp of adulthood and childhood. Like, I felt that – I loved teaching that age, and I was similar in age to you. I was in my early 20s, so I wasn't that much older than a lot of the kids. They were like 12 to 15. Like, we listened to a lot of the same music. We had a lot of the same cultural references. So, and I think for sure that was like an advantage in teaching middle school age kids, but you could still see the little kid in a lot of them. Yeah. And and for me, like later when I became a dad, I realized how much that time in my life had sort of set me up to learn certain things about parenting that I'd never really thought about or muscles that I hadn't really tried out yet. Did you have that relationship with teaching too? Did you, did you feel like you had that sort of mentorship relationship with your students that maybe helped you later on when you had your own kids? Yeah. Those nine years I spent as a teacher informed a lot of the like parenting practices. They informed a lot of my writing. Mm-hmm. It's the best job I've ever had for a lot of different reasons, but in part because it does prepare you to like be a human in the world. Because when I showed up to teach, I was 24, maybe 25, something like that. Yeah. Like I had not done anything. I had not lived any sort of life. I didn't know how to handle anything, but you get thrown into that classroom and all of a sudden you're responsible for over the course of the day, 180, 190, 14 year olds. Like you learn a bunch of shit real quick. Mm-hmm. I've read you say in places that you'd never wanted to be a writer and talk later about how that came about, but that you really only ever wanted to be a teacher and that you plan to go back to it. Is that still what you see in your future? Do you want to at some point get back to teaching? Yeah, I would love to. I would love to do that. Once I finish all of the little stuff I want to do with writing, the plan is to at some point find myself back in a, back in a middle school. The little stuff Shay wants to do with writing is actually not so little. Along with his new TV show, he's also launched his own imprint, Halfway Books, started publishing fiction, and his incredibly fun and popular books that I mentioned at the top of the show were all New York Times number one bestsellers. A quick break here to say that this episode of Hey Pop with Shea Serrano is entirely free. The full versions of most episodes will only be available to paying subscribers, but this is our first show, so here you go. You can sign up at heypop.substack.com at no cost, and everything will land right in your inbox. And you can also support the show there. 
You might have noticed that you haven't been forced to skip through ads for mattresses or razors or hair cream. That's because we're forging a different model for podcasting here. Hey Pop is entirely supported by listeners. We don't do ads because frankly, they suck. No one wants to hear them. And I'm optimistic about this new, independent, community-driven model for podcasting. Please consider supporting us at heypop.substack.com. Back in 2007, before Shay turned to writing, he and Laramie had planned their dream wedding. And then it all got derailed when she ended up in the hospital. It was the day, like the day before the wedding, and she had this uh, crazy health scare. And then the doctors were like, you can't, you got to be in the hospital. You can't go anywhere. The wedding got canceled literally the day before. People were like showing up to be at the wedding. And we were like, oh, fuck, I forgot to call you and tell you that this got uh, called off. But yeah, we were going to have, it was going to be a very pretty uh, wedding. Laramie had planned the whole thing. She has incredible taste. It was going to be very tasteful, very elegant affair. And I was super excited about it. I was, I'd never, I mean, you were a, a tuxedo in high school at a prom or whatever. Yeah. But this was like going to be, so the first time in several years I got to be dressed up in a in a tux. And I knew she was going to look beautiful in a dress and everyone's going to be there and celebrating her. And it was going to be so much fun. And then that should all turn to ash in our hands the day before and... It was a disaster. A super, super not a great experience. Thanks for bringing it up, Dan. Appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought you might want to relive it. But I would imagine it became a great experience, just a different one than you had planned for, right? You went ahead and had the wedding in the hospital, and did you still have some people you were close with there? Yeah, we ended up we ended up doing it still. I was like, I kind of don't want to wait. Yeah. She was like, I kind of don't want to wait either. I said, well, we we could just do it here. We'll just, we don't need 150 people here. We'll just call like my uncle who, who runs a church. One of my uncles on my dad's side was going to officiate the wedding. Yeah. Sip. Cipriano is his name. Cipriano Serrano. What a cool last name. But I was like, hey, Uncle Sip is still here. He can just come by and we'll do it here. And she was like, all right, I'm down if you're down. So he came, my parents came, like a couple of people showed up. We just did it right there in the hospital room she didn't have a gown like a wedding dress she had a hospital gown on so i just put a hospital gown on too as my (laughs) uh tuxedo amazing and we stood there and did all this stuff we have we have exactly two photos from our wedding that somebody took on like a little portable camera that they just happened to have in a purse and they're they're framed in our house but yeah it ended up being like a really cool story to be able to tell afterward when like things worked out okay yeah at the time it was terrifying but now it's like a, a cool thing to revisit. I, I still have a dream of having a wedding. I very much want to stand there and watch her walk down the aisle and like have that whole experience. I think um, we have been together or married at this point for 16 years. So maybe at like year 20, mm-hmm. we'll have a proper wedding. That would be pretty great. So Laramie basically was ordered to bed rest at that point. Like Mm -hmm. around the time you got married Mm -hmm. and then you looking for more sources of income landed on writing. That's about the shape of it. Yeah. Yeah. We were both teachers. She had the the pregnancy complications. She was on bed rest. She couldn't teach. All of a sudden we were, we were going from a family of two, me and her. And at the time we're both teaching. So we're both making like 40 grand a year. So two people making 80 grand a year, which is you know, not that bad. We're we're doing all right. Mm-hmm. We can afford our apartment and we got our 
car payments and we weren't paying our student loans. We put those in forbearance or whatever, fuck those loans. <laughs> but everything else, we were good. And then she all of a sudden couldn't work anymore. So we went from a family of two on an $80,000 salary to she's pregnant with the twins. They were about to be born. So it was a family of four on a $40,000 a year salary. And the numbers were not adding up so great for us. So yeah, I needed I needed to make some extra money. And writing was ended up being the way that I somehow got to do that. I'm thinking back to when I had my first kid and I didn't have twins. I had one kid and just my wife and I trying to balance our work lives with figuring out how to raise a human being. Basically, I want to ask you about how you did this schedule wise, because you were teaching, you were coaching, you were just starting to make your career as a writer and you had two babies at home. What was a typical day like for you? All right. So it was like, you wake up at 6, be at work 6.45, school starts at 7.35, you you teach at school from 7.35 to 4, then you are, are doing whatever version of practice from like 4 to 6, and then you're home by 6.30, and then you're doing the, the like husband and father thing from 6.30 to maybe like 9 o'clock and the kids are finally out, and then you get maybe like an hour with Laramie just the two of us, and then writing, pitching, doing all of that stuff from like 10 to 1 or something like that, and then do it again the next the next day. It was like very regimented. Once I got the schedule in place, it was like, okay, cool, this works. This is how it has to be for a little while. Let's just stick with that. And then everybody, you know, everybody knows what what's going on and everybody adjusts to it. Are you one of those people who just doesn't need to sleep more than like five hours a day? Or can you do that for many days in a row? Oh, I I love to sleep. I sleep a lot now. Yeah. At the, but at the time, you like, you sort of do what you what you have to do, and that was what the schedule dictated. When Shea started writing in earnest sixteen years ago, he hadn't graduated from some fancy writing program or studied under a venerated Pulitzer winning author. Shea simply needed money to support his family. He started picking up writing assignments for a few bucks here and a few more there, and he kept getting better and editors began to notice, offering him more prestigious and lucrative assignments. He landed pieces in the Houston Press and then the LA Weekly, and later Grantland and The Ringer, eventually going independent and finding a huge readership for his books. But this took years of commitment and sleep deprivation. He'd get to his desk late each night, after his school duties, and after tending to his young family. Nothing was handed to Shea. And his success didn't come easy. He turned on the desk lamp when the rest of us were asleep. And he put in the work, learning his craft and developing a unique voice that was smart, funny, and true to his San Antonio roots. All these years later, Shea works as a full-time writer. But at his core, he's a family man. How have you and Laramie sort of shared and balanced parenting duties over the years? Like, How do you two approach that? We figured out pretty early on that for both of us, what we need to do is set expectations. Like, all right, I'm responsible for this. You're responsible for that. Great. Because if you don't do that, then it ends up being a thing of like, you're you're silently waiting for the other person to do something. Yeah. And they're silently waiting for you to do it. And neither one of y'all is doing it. And you're secretly getting mad at each other. I always think about, there was an episode of, of Everybody Loves Raymond. You ever watch that show? couple episodes, yeah. I remember watching it in, in college. And there was one episode where Raymond went on a work trip. 
And he came home and he had like a travel suitcase and he set it at the base of the stairs. And then he just left it there. He was waiting for Deborah to put it away. And she was waiting for him to put it away. And they were both getting mad that the other person wasn't putting it away. That was like the what the whole episode was about. Yeah. And then, you know, you get married and you start a life and you realize, oh, that's a very real thing. If I don't know exactly what I'm responsible for doing, then I'm going to do as little as possible because I'm a yeah. selfish person. That's just what <laughs> that's just what it is. That's just right. how I am. So when the kids were born, you're trying to figure out how to handle that situation, how to handle the work situation, how to handle all of it. And it's like, all right, we just need to set responsibilities. Who's mm-hmm. responsible for what? So here's a, a perfect example. One of the twins, he goes to a school that I pass on the way to work, mm-hmm. right? And so Laramie, she drops him off in the morning. That's part of her job. And then I pick him up in the afternoon. That's my job. Mm -hmm. So I never have to worry about how he's going to get to school in the morning. And she never has to worry about how he's going to get home that afternoon. Yeah. Like I know that's, that's what she's responsible for. That's what I'm responsible for. And it's like that with like every single thing that we have with the kids. Every, each night the twins have to uh, clean the kitchen. That's part of their chores, right? And so I'm responsible for making sure that happens because mm-hmm. Laramie is doing a, a million other things. That's one of the few responsibilities I have is make sure the kitchen gets cleaned. Yeah. And so if it doesn't get done, I know it's my fault that it didn't get done. Right. And right. she knows it's my fault that it didn't get, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's how we sort of situated everything. You just set those expectations and, no, and then it, it minimizes a bunch of the little th- problems that could pop up. I mean, st- you know, stuff still happens. You still miss some of the stuff, but you know, you know who's responsible, and if it's your fault, you got to just be like, "Ah, oh, shit, my bad." Right I'll, right. I'll try and you know, I'll try and do better. Shay, what do you think makes for a good dad? I think what makes for a good dad is if the kid knows that you love them, and that they feel like if they called you for whatever reason, good or bad, you're gonna show up. And that's it. I think if you if you can do those things, if you can make the kid feel that way, then that's a pretty great start. One thing I was reminded of in talking with Shay Serrano is how much of parenting is simply kindness. Being present and understanding and thoughtful and modeling that behavior for your kids. Shay has a reputation for making big, kind gestures, like this one. In 2016, right before Christmas, Shay couldn't find his car in the parking lot at the Houston airport, and a woman who worked there as a lot attendant drove him around for an hour until they found it. Shay didn't have money on him to give her a tip, but when he got home, he tweeted out to his hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers that he wanted to do something nice for this woman and her two daughters with the holidays approaching. His community started sending in donations, and soon after, Shay drove back to the airport and handed the woman a $3,000 cash tip with a card that read, Thank you for being nice when you didn't have to be. Merry Christmas. This is one of many such stories. Shay does these things because that's who he is. It comes from that same selfless part of him that made him want to be a middle school teacher. You don't teach middle school because you love money and prestige. You do it because you love people and are naturally inclined to put others first. It's a job that requires Mother Teresa levels of generosity and patience. And you find those qualities in Shay as a writer, as a person, and as a parent. 
Well, Shay, thank you so much, man. It's really good to see you. I love talking with you. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, super, super fun. Super chill. Big thanks to Shay Serrano for talking with me on today's episode of Hey Pop. Original music for Hey Pop is by Brandon Herring and his two brilliant sons, Nicholas and Elliot, ages 11 and 14. I wrote and produced the show, and it was mastered by Seven Morris. The art for Hey Pop was drawn by my kids, Virgil and Amaro, and designed by my pal, Casey Burns. Stop over at heypop.substock.com to support the show, and there you'll find a bunch of written pieces, all the episodes, and some bonus stuff, and you can sign up so you don't miss anything. This is Dan Stone. Thank you for listening, and I'll have a new episode of Hey Pop ready for you soon. <laughs>